0: As they're making their way in that direction, would you join with me in a word of prayer this morning? Almighty God, this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Today we begin a new adventure together, and it really is a pretty awesome adventure. Sometimes we human beings are good at making church just a religious formality, translation boring. But true faith in God, true exploration of God's holy word is really anything but boring. We might do a good job of toning it down, but in reality it is not. Let me present to you Exhibit A. We have already started to engage together in the book of Daniel, specifically in chapter two, and just related to this one chapter, we hear of visions, we hear of lives being threatened, we hear of kingdoms rising and falling, we hear of the presence of empires, we hear about rulers, and right through the middle of it all is this connection with God and how it is that we follow God and what is it we can learn about God here in Scripture this morning. It is fascinating, anything but boring stuff. So as we gather together this morning, I'm just going to touch on this very quickly. You might wonder a little bit, why are we searching the book of Daniel? Daniel is probably not one of those books you turn to every day for practical living and understanding what it is God might want to share with us. So just very quickly, two reasons that we're going to be looking at Daniel today in the next couple of weeks is first of all, to be reminded, the Old Testament still has an awful lot to say to us today. We've spent a whole bunch of weeks in the book of Acts in the New Testament. And in a lot of ways, that just feels more applicable. There are things we can look at in the New Testament and apply directly to our lives. When it comes to the Old Testament, it's easier to think that was for a different time, but no longer speaks to us today. Daniel will remind us it still has a lot to say to us. And the second thing is that we want to focus this morning on practical Christian living. That is to say that Daniel is an amazing book that's going to help us understand how you and I in our lives can practically live out our faith and especially in a secular society or a society that as a whole does not follow God as Lord and Savior. What does it mean for us as followers of God who wanna take Jesus seriously? How do we live into that? Daniel gives us some very practical ways that we can do that. Before we get too far into Daniel though, I wanna make sure we understand what's going on with Daniel as a whole. I wanna set the context for the entire book and look at some of the circumstances surrounding Daniel. As we understand those things, that will help us understand Chapter two in particular. First of all, Daniel is a type of literature called exilic literature. Kind of a fun word to say. As you might guess, it's based off of the word exile. And Daniel is one of the books in the Old Testament that talks about the exile of Israel. Now the exile of Israel refers to a time in the history of the Israelites, that is, the people of God, when they were physically taken by King Nebuchadnezzar out of Israel, out of the land they had been given, and moved to the actual city or place of Babylon. They were literally exiled from one location to another. And when that happened, part of what it meant was The people of God were physically moved from a culture in which everything was based on God. So the government, the arts, everything in that culture pointed to God. They were moved to a culture that had nothing to do with God when they were moved to Babylon. In fact, they were moved into a culture that was even hostile to God. The government, the arts paid no attention to God. And part of what the people of God have to learn to do then is figure out how do I live a life in the biblical God in an unbelieving world? It was fairly easy, if you can say that, when they lived on their own with the government and everything else that supported follower, being a follower of God. But what do you do when the government, the culture that you're a part of, what do you do when it's not a follower of God? In fact, what do you do when it's hostile to God? That's really the question that we're going to pull on throughout this entire series and really begin digging into here this morning in chapter two. And it should sound like a pretty relevant question to you and I, because we increasingly today live in a world that is not friendly to God. We increasingly live in a world that doesn't know anything about God. And so that's going to make Daniel incredibly relevant for you and I here this morning. There was a time in general in our country when the arts, the government, most higher forms of education, all of those systems were generally supportive of Christianity. That is no longer the case. So again, like Daniel, all of us to some extent have been exiled. Some of us, all of us to some extent have been moved into a foreign land or territory we're not familiar with. So how do you and I learn to live a life of integrity in a secular, unbelieving world as followers of Jesus? That's what we're going to be wrestling with throughout this series. But before we answer that question, there's one other question I want to raise this morning. And by answering that question first, it'll help us to better understand how we can be authentic followers of Christ in a culture that doesn't really know Christ. And here then is my second question. If you listen carefully this morning to what was shared in Daniel chapter 2, there was a very interesting detail that was given. Daniel is given not just one name, but two names. So here's my question. Why does Daniel get two names? He gets the name Belteshazzar and he gets the name Daniel. Why the two? And what we'll see is if we can answer that question, it's going to give us some insight into, again, how we can live with integrity in a pluralistic secular society. So here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up or if you have a Bible app on your phone Open that up as well. If you're worshiping online, find it. Wherever you might be, whatever worship setting today, go ahead and open your Bibles. Now, I will say you probably don't turn to Daniel all the time, at least on a regular basis, I'm guessing. Daniel's in the Old Testament about two-thirds of the way through. And to find it, I would suggest that you open up the Old Testament right in the middle. And if you do that, you'll probably open to the book of Psalms. Once you open to the book of Psalms, go eight books past that to the book of Daniel. Ezekiel is the book right before Daniel. Hosea is the book right after Daniel. Daniel's only 12 chapters long. So if you're flipping through your Bible, it might be easy to skim on by it. So look pretty carefully for it. 12 chapters. And then if you would find chapter two and specifically verse 26, and once you find it this morning, just leave it open there because it's the one verse we're gonna focus on here together this morning. So Daniel chapter two, verse 26. Here's what it says. The king asked Daniel also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Why the two names? To be very clear here this morning, Belteshazzar, that's not the middle name of Daniel. That's not what's going on. It would be a little bit like me saying, take my daughter, Alex. Her name is Alex and also Mumbai. Or take my son Josh, his name is Josh and also Hoyakim. Or my son Zach, we're also going to call him Juniper. I mean, why these two weird names? It sounds so strange to you and I. What's going on with that? Here's what's going on. Daniel's given two names because the name Daniel is a Hebrew name, meaning God is my judge. And the name Belteshazzar is a Babylonian name, meaning Bel is my God. And so there's a clear distinction there of being or having a Babylonian identity. I point that out because these two names point to the dual identities that Daniel carries. He's, on the one hand, a faithful Hebrew of God. He is, on the other hand, a Babylonian person working in the culture of Babylon, specifically in their government. And what we're going to notice is that these two lens, these two forms of identification are going to raise tension points in Daniel's life for us to begin to wrestle with and say, what exactly is going on there? For example, because he has a clear Babylonian identity, we'll understand he rose up pretty high in the governmental ranks. Well, you and I might look at that and say, well, how did he get there? And what does that mean? How can somebody be a faithful, believing man of God like Daniel, and at the same time, how can he be in this very pagan governmental structure and not only in it, at the very top of it? Doesn't that mean he's gonna have to compromise one or the other? How can he be both a wise man in the culture of Babylon and at the same time, a faithful man of God? Well, these two names point to those kinds of tensions, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit together here this morning. Some of us might realize this or know this about King Nebuchadnezzar. And let me just say, I'll say King Nebuchadnezzar, but that is quite a mouthful. So if I just call him King Neb, you will know who it is that I'm talking about here this morning. Some of us might be familiar with one date related to King Nebuchadnezzar because it's a fairly well-known date in all of history. It's the date of 587 BC. This is covered in a lot of history classes. It is known that in 587 BC See, King Neb came in with his Babylonian army, he conquered the Israelite people, he raised the city of Jerusalem to the ground, wiped it out, and then carried all of the people and exiled them by taking them to the place of Babylon. Lots of people are generally familiar with that. What many people don't know though is that ten years prior to five eighty-seven BC, at that time those ten years earlier, King Neb came in then also, and he conquered the Israelite people then. Ten years earlier. But in the 10 years earlier, he didn't come in and get rid of the whole city and destroy it and carry off the hundreds of thousands of people. Here's what he did, which is pretty interesting. When he defeated them 10 years earlier, he only carried away 10,000 of the Israelites. Only 10,000 did he take away from Israel and carry to Babylon. It's kind of an interesting number. Why would he only choose 10,000 of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelites that there were? Why would he do that? Well, the ones that he picked, and they were, they were carefully chosen, they weren't just random, the 10,000 that he chose were the leaders, those who carried influence. So the leaders of the military, the government professionals, the scholars, the wise men, the educators, those involved in art, those are the ones that King Neb picked out of the Israelite culture and carried away to his kingdom. Now, why would he do that? What was he after to to pick these 10,000 out and take them and carry them away? Well, the simple answer is King Neb is a pretty cagey dude. He knows exactly what he's doing here. And here's what he's trying to do. If you don't want to literally move hundreds of thousands of people and carry them into exile and go to all of that energy and all of that effort, what do you do to make a people subservient to you or to make them docile to you? How do you make them easy to control? You take their most influential people, their professionals, their leaders, and you babinize them. Can I use that word? You, you get them, you kind of brainwash them, and if you can brainwash them, then the rest of the people will follow. So at this time, Babylon had a polytheistic culture. That is, they believed in a whole bunch of gods. Israel was the opposite. They only believed in one God. Babylon was a country or a place, I should say, where there were lots of standards of truth. For Israel, there was only one standard of truth. So what King Neb wanted to do is he wanted to destroy the biblical worldview of just these professionals. He wanted to dislodge them. He wanted them to live in Babylon and become culturally, spiritually, religiously Babylonian and nature. And he knew that by doing that, he could then subjugate all of Israel. Because if you can dislodge the leaders, he knew that the followers would follow. So it's really a pretty smart move on his part. So he takes these 10,000 professionals to Babylon. But then when the 10,000 professionals get to Babylon, they have a choice. They can live in the city or they can live outside of the city. Now, you and I, when we're listening to this story and we're saying, well, how are we going to be faithful people of God? These people have just captured you. They're moving you to the city. What do we do? These people at first said, we're going to live outside the city. And I think a lot of us would make that choice too. These bad people, these evil people, they've captured us. The last thing we're going to do is go into that city and live with them. So instead, we're going to live separate from the city. We're going to live outside the city so we don't get corrupted by them. And in the midst of this, that's exactly what these folks did, these 10,000. And in the midst of the 10,000, certain prophets rose up among them. And here's what they prophesied. They said, stay away from the city, pray against the city, pray that the city falls apart. And if the city falls apart, eventually we'll come back into power, just like we were in Israel. And then everything will be okay. So pray against the city. Don't go there. Have nothing to do with it. And specifically, there was a prophet named Hananiah. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 28, you will see a description of what's happening here. And the one thing I love about the picture, all of these books in the Old Testament are part of telling one story. So what's happening in Jeremiah 28 is also a description of what's happening here in Daniel 2. And in Jeremiah 28, this prophet rises up named Hananiah. And he's proclaiming, stay out of the city, pray against it. But here's the problem with Hananiah. He is described as a false prophet. He is not of God. So here's a guy saying, stay out of the city, pray that the city will be destroyed, except he's a false prophet. It's not a good thing. The true prophet of God is Jeremiah himself. And it's kind of a neat picture here. Like you can almost picture like Jeremiah getting in the face of Hananiah because literally what Jeremiah comes and says is, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You are getting these people to follow a lie. So there's sort of this battle going on between the two. And Jeremiah's like, not only are you telling them the wrong thing, but right what you should be doing. Listen up because here's what you should be doing. And here's what he says in Jeremiah 29 to 70, these 10,000 who are currently living in the city. Here's what he says. This is what the Lord says in exile. Not what Hananiah is preaching to you, but this. I, the Lord, have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what I want you to do there, people. I want you to build houses. I want you to live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat what comes from the gardens and what they produce. I want you to take wives and sons and daughters and take wives for your sons. And I want you to go there and I want you to multiply. Do not decrease. I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. I want you to pray to the Lord on its behalf, not to destroy it, on its behalf. And again, marry, have sons, have daughters, increase. And here's what I want you to do. You seek the prosperity, the goodness of the city. Pray to the Lord about that. And if it prospers, you too, people of God, you 10,000, you will prosper as well. And then he says this in verse 8. I love this. Do not let those prophets, like Hananiah among you, deceive you. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. Don't give him any credence. The people who would have heard that message from Jeremiah, do you know what they would have been like? They'd only like, what? Their heads would have been spinning. What do you mean? They would have been astounded. This sounds so counterintuitive to what our natural inclinations are wait a minute, you want me to go into the city with those corrupt, evil people? You want us to go be intentionally with those secular, non-God-fearing people? Won't we be compromising ourselves? Won't we become infected by them? Really, God, that's what you want us as your holy people to do? And Jeremiah says, yes. And what Jeremiah does is he helps us understand three things about Daniel 2 here this morning about this whole concept of what's going on. First of all, he helps us to understand the big picture, to look at the big picture. God has a bigger picture for what's going on here than what you and I can understand. Part of what God is saying here is this. This is the city to which I carried you. In other words, part of what God is saying is part of my plan is to remember I can use all things to my glory. So even though in part you're being punished because you didn't follow my ways and I let these foreign people, King Neb, capture you, I use all things to my glory so you have intentionally lost your power. Part of God's plan here is now to have the people of God live in a pagan world so that part of what God is doing is renewing the people of Israel by growing them, by changing them, by refining them, by having them live in this foreign culture that is no longer God-friendly. And part of what God is saying is your loss of cultural power, your need to live as believers in an unbelieving world, that's part of my plan. So move there, go there, get in there, don't stay away. Look at the big picture of what I'm doing. Now, we know this is not easy for us as God's people. We would so prefer to stay in our Christian bubbles or wherever it's comfortable. Not too long ago, I was in a setting and the speaker asked those of us who were gathered there, how many of you right now have a meaningful relationship with a non-Christian or how many non-Christians? And among the group of us gathered there, there weren't a whole lot of names that we could lift up. Because it's just so much easier to stay in our Christian bubble and say, they should be doing this or they should be doing that. But we also know that when we're most comfortable, that's not when we grow. Like we discovered when we looked at the book of Acts, we grow most when we are uncomfortable, when we are desperate, when we have to fall to our knees crying out to God. It's in those times that something happens in our spirits and suddenly we're brought into alignment with God. Remember in the book of Acts, it wasn't in the times of comfort that the kingdom of God grew, It's when they were persecuted. It's when they had their very lives threatened that they threw themselves before God and in the midst of the persecution, God moved in such a way that the gospel spread throughout the world. That's part of what's happening here in Daniel chapter two. Look at the big picture, says Jeremiah. Get into the city. Don't stay out of it. The second thing that Jeremiah helps us understand about Daniel two is this, that God's people, we have more choices than assimilation or separation, If you ask the average person, as a follower of God, if you take that seriously, how are you going to respond to the world? Almost always, we do one of two things. We either separate from it, I am not going to be contaminated by the ways of the world, but I will point from a distance and say, you're wrong, or all of these kinds of things. Or we do the opposite. We say, I don't know what difference I can make. And so we assimilate completely, and therefore, we look no different as a Christian than what any other non-Christian is doing. And part of what Daniel reminds us of here this morning is to say there's another option because those two ultimately don't work. Remember, the false prophets are saying, don't move in. Don't assimilate. They're saying, stay out. And God says, I don't want you to lose your identity. But remember, these aren't the only choices. So part of what God is doing is saying, in part, don't assimilate. Don't lose your identity. Don't melt in. Don't become Babylonians. Make sure you're growing. But look what God also says. He says, get in there and build houses, settle down, plant gardens, produce, have children, marry, settle down, and through it all, seek the prosperity of the city. Move in. So that what God is saying here is this, I don't want you to assimilate, but I do want you to move in, get involved culturally, economically, raise your kids there, be deeply involved in the city. I have always loved Christians that I have known who have recognized that part of their call in their life was to move specifically into the city to make a difference. Not long after I graduated from college, uh, some friends of mine named Ryan and Steph, at that time in their life, they felt specifically called to go to the city of Atlanta. And I don't mean the plush, wonderful suburbs of Atlanta where everything is great. I mean in the heart of the city where things are not so good. And they specifically went for one purpose. They felt called to go into one of the darkest, most broken places of Atlanta for the sole purpose of offering light and life. And so they went to an apartment complex where people were living above them, below them, beside them, where it was very broken just to try to be light for Christ in a very dark place. Because they understood that as Christians, part of their call is to move to the city And it's part of our calling as well, First Church. It's one of the reasons we do Transform every year to literally invest in our city, to make it better, to improve it, to seek the prosperity of the city. And so if you've never been part of Transform, please think and pray about it for this year because God doesn't want us just to be separated from a distance, but to live distinctly as God's people and to hold on to God's worldly view or hold on to a godly world point view at the same time. So how is it that we do that? How do we live sort of these two lives at the same time? I think one of the things that Jeremiah might say to us is to learn to be spiritually bicultural. That is to say, move into the city of humanity, but stay citizens of the city of God. Or as one of my professors from seminary, Stanley Howarwas once said, how do you do this? You become resident aliens. Move into a city of humanity, but live as citizens of the city of God. Don't love me and hate the city, says God, or vice versa, love them both. And when we do that, we then learn the third thing that Jeremiah shares with us about Daniel 2 this morning. Daniel starts to show us how we can live biculturally culturally or bi-spiritually. How do you do that? So that you're not just assimilating and you're not just separating. How do you do the third alternative? Jeremiah tells us, I want you to start praying for the city. Don't just pray against it. Don't pray for its downfall. You pray for the city. Pray for its peace and its shalom because if it prospers, you prosper, and that will be a key in your motivation. There's a word used in scripture here called shalom. I'm guessing some of us have heard that word. Generally translated, it means peace or hi, or goodbye. So we can say shalom as we gather this morning or as we get ready to depart, but it means more than that. It means a complete, total, multidimensional well-being. So it means to be well spiritually, economically, materially, physically, emotionally, in every way. That's what shalom is. And part of what God is saying here this morning is, don't just go into a city, don't just build your church there, and then build your church with your walls around you and look out to the rest of the city, pointing your finger, saying, tis, 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 you should be here with us that's not what god is saying he says go into the city and i want you to put your life on the line i want you to go and make it prosperous you go and bring the shalom make it safe again make it grow again make it better again don't separate from it make it prosper bring it shalom that again is why we focus on transform It's why things like justice are a big deal for us. It's why we do tutoring with kids. It's why we offer First Night every Wednesday night. It's why we just spent this past week with over 300 kids, many of them ours, but many of them kids from the city in Vacation Bible School, because God wants us to be in the city to see its best, to pray for the city, not against the city. It was the false prophets who said, pray against. It was the true prophet of God who said, pray for. If we, only, if we only come and celebrate the city, if we only assimilate to the city, then we're never going to see how broken it is or how much shalom still needs to happen. But at the same time, if we only ever separate from it, if we only ever point our finger and judge it, we'll never get involved in helping bring God's kingdom within it. So I think one of the ways that we can summarize all of this is just to say, love the city of humanity for the sake of the city of God. Love the city of humanity for the sake of the city of God. And that is so much of what Daniel has shown us here this morning. All of us should have at least two names. All of us should at least have our heavenly identity as well as our earthly identity or presence. But most Christians don't even realize that there's another option out there. We think assimilate, we look no different. Separate, we're never gonna get involved. But Daniel's different. He gives us a different blueprint to follow. He knows his identity as sure as anything that he is a child of God. And because of that, he can serve with security and not compromise who he is in his day job of working in the government. Remember, Daniel himself is a prophet here. Daniel shares he knows that God is the one, true, holy, sovereign God. But notice at the same time, Daniel was serving in the highest places of civil service in the government at that time. How did he get there? If you were to go back and look in Daniel chapter 1, you would understand Daniel himself went through rigorous training in the liberal arts of the Babylonian culture. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 27, we understand that he was with all of the other wise men. He would only be there if he had done the same training that they had done. That means he was a member of the same classes of what had been offered. You know what that means? It means for Daniel to get in the position that he now holds, he had to study things like enchanting and divining and magic, just like the other wise men. He had studied all the things that they had and yet somehow through that stayed authentic as a follower of God so much so that God used his abilities and he raised all the way up through this pagan government to get to the very highest levels. So why can't the rest of us do similar things in whatever jobs we might have? I think because Many of us are locked in this idea presented in Jeremiah 29 that the only options are separation, are assimilation. Now, we know it's not easy. But one of our tendencies a lot of times in any occupation that we have is what does it mean for me to be a Christian in this environment? So if I'm a Christian actor or I'm a Christian banker or I'm a Christian businessman or I'm a Christian teacher, what's the list of rules that I need to be a Christian? What are the things I shouldn't do to be a Christian? Instead of getting caught up in all of the rules because we're not going to find them in Scripture I think there's one question, just one, that if we were to ask this every day, we would be in the right place, in the right occupation, but still living out a godly life at the same time without compromising who we are, that we would not lose our distinctness. And here's the question I want us to be asking ourselves. If we were to ask this every day, we would be amazed at the results. And here's the question. How does the gospel or the cross influence how I do my life or influence how I live or influence what I do in this position. So that whether I'm a banker, an educator, again, a retail salesperson, how does the gospel influence what I'm about to do in this position? And here's the thing, I doubt many of us hardly ever ask that question, let alone every day. But what if we begin every day by saying, all right, God, how does the fact that I'm a follower of you influence what I'm about to do? And here's the thing, if we've never asked that question, it means we've already assimilated. We're already no different than the culture that we're a part of just by asking the question will put us in a place where our hearts are open to be in step with God's will and intentions for our life. That means we no longer have to have the long list of rules. God doesn't give a list of rules in the Old Testament where he says, if you have this job, here's how what you do. And if you have this job, here's what you do. And if you have this job, here's what you do. God gives us 10 general commandments for all of life. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, he reduces it to one big rule. The one big rule in the New Testament is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your Your neighbor, like yourself, it's incredibly relational. If we're looking for a whole list of rules, or if we're insisting there must be a whole list of rules for every situation, then we've made ourselves a separationist because we're not willing to do the hard work of thinking and discerning in each situation what would be faithful to God. God caused each one of us to be Daniel's. So, what does it mean to be a Daniel? It means you master the art of learning what you can for whatever occupation we're in here, but doing so in a way that we don't lose our distinctiveness as Christians and followers of God. Many of us have a tendency just to be the Hananias. It is so much easier to point our finger and say what they should do and what they are doing that's wrong and what they're doing that's wicked. But that's not what Daniel does. In the midst of this culture, in the midst of this city, as Jeremiah has instructed, Daniel's giving his best to the city. He's seeking to build it and improve it all the while while giving faithful witness to God Almighty. And when he does that, God moves and the gospel message, the God message begins to move. The best example that I can give to you is the idea, if I were to come around, I won't scare anybody by doing this, by asking you to stand up, but if I were to come around to any one of you right now or wherever you're worshiping and give you a great big hug or a great big embrace, just picture that for a moment when you get a hug. If I come up to you and give you a hug, what am I communicating? Communicating that I love you, I care about you, you are welcomed, you are embraced. But when I hug you, I don't suddenly melt away. I am still mad. I am still there. My madness doesn't just go away somewhere else. I'm still me. But in the midst of the embrace, I'm communicating that in my distinctiveness, you are welcome and embraced and I love you and I care about you. I think that's the image that God gives us in this with Daniel chapter two, that we love our city, we embrace our city, but we do it in a way that we're not just assimilated in where we lose our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus, but we're also not so far away that we don't hug them and love it and need it. So I want to ask you, what is it, how is it that we can hug our city? Be thinking and praying about transform when it comes. Be thinking and praying about opportunities with our kids. Be thinking and praying, how can we bless the city and make it prosper? And let's not fool ourselves. We need the city too. The city reminds us we're not in power. We're not in control. Remember, Christianity is a religion of the cross. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, if Christians could just be back in control of everything, then everything would be okay. But every single time, without fail, in the course of history that Christianity, or Christians, I should say, have been in control and in power, bad things have happened. We are a people of the cross. (laughs) The cross must be our foundation. And if it is, then we will neither assimilate or separate from the city. And that's the main difference between us in our occupation and those in our occupation who are not Christians is that for us as followers of Jesus, the cross is always the foundation. The Christian is always the one saying, ultimately, whose kingdom am I building? So this morning, as we gather in this place, here are the two things I hope for us. I hope that we will know what our two names are, (laughs) to identify them, to name them, and then to know our foundation that whose kingdom we're ultimately seeking to build. And if we do that, we will ultimately begin to live like Daniel for the betterment, the prospering of the city, and ultimately for the growing of the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen.